we are in a series on First Thessalonians, and I'll admit this this text or this passage has been a little difficult just because it's interesting how to kind of bring God's word when Paul is trying to kind of express his thoughts about things that happened in his ministry. And as he's writing to the Thessalonians, you're kind of picking up on this conversation he's having on recollections on the way that he conducted ministry. And you have to then apply that to how the church is living um, in, in what, the, what, what his aims are for the church. And so we continue in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter three. Now we, we don't have to leave here today after, I mean, we do have to leave here eventually, but the church that normally meets isn't going to be here. So I've got a lot of time to unpack this today, but I'm, I'm not going to use it. Um, but, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and um, stand for the reading of God's word in first Thessalonians chapter three. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when, for when we were with you, we kept telling you before, beforehand that we were to suffer Affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, And, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we furnish, can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you all, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So then, so, so that he may Establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Please be seated. So Paul starts his, um, in the first five verses, he's trying to express to them, he's recounting to them what had happened. And just to, to catch you all up, Paul was kind of run out of Athens along, I'm sorry, not run out of Athens. He was run out of Thessalonica along with uh, Timothy and Silas because there had been kind of a riot or or an uprising with sort of um, easy to 
you know, kind of like thugs, so to speak, brought about by other people kind of inciting them to, uh, to, to say that Paul was causing a disturbance. And this caused the city leaders to basically, um, uh, put, uh, Jason on bail unless these th- these folks left. And so he leaves under distress after three weeks establishing this church. And he's trying to explain to this church his concern for them that they be established in the faith. And he's so concerned here, he's trying to make sure that they understand the level of his concern that when he could, that that um, as he as he continues in verse 3, they had moved on. He said, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, in, in verse 1, we were willing to be left behind Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish you, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by the, um, that no one be moved by these afflictions. You know, um, what what he's trying to say here is that what Paul was willing to do, and this seems like maybe a small thing to us, we, we need to remember that uh, to kind of travel along in the first century wasn't like something where you're just getting a plane ticket or you're showing up maybe on a train or something and you're moving, you're going into a city that's fully established and, you know, it's there's just free trade and you can find a place to stay. Um, you know, this kind of itinerant mis- ministry where he's showing up in towns and he's just, you know, journeying was ha- hazardous. And, and even, even in a, um, in a modern sense, ministry and requires coworkers. I mean, it's, it's not one of those things where you want to go into ministry by yourself and establish a church. You always need some sort of support structure. And what the, what, what Paul is saying is that he was willing to be left alone kind of in a foreign city without Timothy. That's how much he cared for them. Essentially, they're, they're so concerned. He's like, I can't stand it any longer. Timothy, you need to find out what's going on in Thessalonica. And he's willing to be separated from his coworker, his co-laborer in the field, Timothy, who's very dear to him, willing to depart with him, to depart, um, for Timothy to depart from him to be able to establish them. And he know in, 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 in something he says here that's important too is that he says, he says that, um, let no one be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are, we are destined for this. It, you know, I know that, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, Maybe some Christian traditions have a problem with the idea of God destining us for something, but the Christian, one of the things that Christians have been destined for in this life is afflictions. And Paul is actually using a term here that I found really interesting as, as I was studying this is that let no one be moved. The term moved there is actually the, the term for a dog wagging its tail, believe it or not. And if anybody's had, um, some dogs can get so excited when they wag their tail, they can o- almost fall over in excitement when people come home. They're just so excited, they're wagging their tail. But if you've got a, if you've got a happy dog, that, that tail just never stops. And the, the idea here is that we're supposed to be firm. We're supposed to be, you know, Paul, Paul wants to make sure that in all our afflictions, we need to be steadfast. 
We need to be steady because we're destined for afflictions and we need to be reminded of that. And so often in the Christian life, we kind of think about what our, what the destiny is for Christians is to kind of, um, I guess for God to kind of provide for us. And so that when, when things don't happen the way they ought to, we're wondering what's going wrong. Rather than preparing ourselves for the fact that afflictions in this world are the normal course of things, we're supposed to be experiencing afflictions in this life if we're living for Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we go out of our way to seek afflictions, but what I'm trying to say is that I think that one of the problems that the, uh, that the Western church has is that we're, we're, we're looking for a Christian community in which we're going to fit in, which in which we're going to feel like we've uh, received the kinds of things that we need from it, the kinds of friendships, the kind of support structures, which s- certainly we should be supporting and, 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 and having friendships and that sort of thing. But are we thinking of ourselves, are we thinking about the church? I want to choose, I want to be part of that church because it's the kind of church that's going to prepare me for afflictions because in this life, if I really believe that God has set me free from principalities and powers and, and we're really storming the gates of hell in terms of trying to rescue men and women and children from the same fate that we once ourselves once had, are we preparing ourselves for battle for afflictions, or are we thinking, no, I want to, I want to have a place in which I'm safe and secure, and and uh, I don't ever have to be uncomfortable, or if the church um, causes me some sort of distress in the form of difficult relationships inside of that, I need to go find somewhere else where I don't have friction and that sort of thing. You guys following what I'm saying? If if the church is meant to prepare us for afflictions, are we thinking about the kind of church that's going to do that? Or are we looking for the things that the church can do for us in terms of providing, uh, you know, security and happiness and all that other thing? And so it, it really is uh, a way of looking at uh, the Christian life in terms of preparing ourselves the fact that if God himself has destined us for afflictions, then are we in the kind of church that's maturing us and causing us to walk so that we may be prepared to endure those afflictions and walk through those with others? He says, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you um, and our labor would be in vain. Now, Paul has already said his labor is not in vain, but at the time before he sent Timothy, he wasn't sure. He had planted and watered, and we understand from the, uh, from the, 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 the parable of the sower that God gives the increase but the concern is always in the apostle himself or the gospel worker that they want to see that the, the, the work that they've done has not been in vain. And it really is the case that the tempter can try to allure people. Maybe they're saying, you know what, that... It, that that new new thing go back to the old ways we've been doing this for centuries in this city all it's doing is causing you distress and we think well well that's just somebody making an argument about their their religion but paul is saying no this is the tempter that does this is the tempter that comes in with all these plausible arguments as to why christianity 
in the, in the, in the first century context, it was considered new. And so therefore it was bad, right? Which seems odd to us because if something's new, it must be better, you know? It's like, um, uh, Christianity version 13. Or no, I'm sorry. It's now 14, you know? It's, it's iOS version 14 of Christianity. And if it doesn't have the new icons and everything else and, and, and relating to our, our current things and, and trending and all that other stuff, it must not be useful. But in the first century, it was like, what, what are you following this new religion for? Which in fact, it was not a new religion. It was an ancient religion that went back to creation. But, and that's one of the things that actually the, the Christians in the first century had to argue for was the ancientness of the Christian faith to show that the, the pagan religions were actually the innovators. Where, where in our, where in our context, we actually have to argue for why something old would be relative, re- relevant to an age in which, you know, you're throwing away a device that, you know, you're kind of looking at on a daily basis every year, year and a half, and you're getting a new one, and you're always getting something new. And we're constantly always moving from one thing to, to the next. So how can something still be useful that's thousands of years old. But that's the kind of thing that the tempter tries to do. In any context, he's going to find that point of leverage and try and move people. He's going to try and move them from being steadfast, and he's going to cause affliction. Maybe it's not necessarily always going to be affliction in the co- in the kind of physical suffering. It could just be um, affliction in the kind of not fitting in, not feeling like you're... Um, you're with the arc of history. You're considered um, strange if you're not going along with the ideas of this age. You're not um, for certain ideas of justice or whatever it is. You're causing, um, vi- you're doing violence to somebody's identity, whatever it is. Because even though you're aiming at the flourishing and the love of other people based on what you know, and you're, you're loving people based on the idea of that you understand that they're, they're dead in sins and trespasses and need the, need the gospel. That news doesn't come as welcoming. And so it's easy to be moved from that position if you're not steadfast and you're not prepared for those afflictions. And Paul was so concerned that he wanted to see that they were established in the faith. And so he has sent Timothy back to them to make sure that they're established. He continues in verse 6 to 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and report that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly that not, most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So this is actually written as this this letter was written obviously after Timothy came back because it's not it's not like a continuous live stream, just so you know, kids. I mean, he's not like going, oh, hey, what's going on, Timothy? They're doing well. Okay, so now I'm in, in chapter three, and I'm like, the report is that Timothy, from Timothy, is that everything's well. No, he's he's writing this letter in, in response to the fact that Timothy has come back after some time and reported to, to Paul, and they're just, they're overjoyed. 
They're, they're just, there, there's, there's, there's almost, there's actually a godly anxiety here. There's, there's sort of a concern. It's, 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 it's not a bad thing for somebody to care earnestly and to be concerned for the people that they love. And anybody who has, um, you know, adult children or children who are getting to a certain age and, and you are desirous for something for them that you, you know that you can't go into their heart or their, into their mind and desire something for them. There's a certain sense of good desire or anxious desire, not in, in a sen- sinful sense that you desire something for them and you're concerned that they're, that, that, that they're, they're going the right way. And that's the kind of concern that Paul has for them. And so when the, the, the good news comes back, it's literally the same word as the gospel, the euangelion, the good news of your faith. Not, not that the gospel is their faith. You understand? There's, there's a way to use the idea that something is good news without saying it's always the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is the, the fact that he was the son of God come to earth, uh, as man suffered and died on a cross and rose again on the third day for our sins. Rose again, or died for our sins and rose again on the third day for our justification. That's the gospel. And then we have faith in that. When we're sharing the good news, the good news isn't, isn't my faith in the gospel. The good news is the event, the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. But it is good news that they had faith. And this is what Paul is saying. It's, it's like, it's, they're overjoyed when they hear this. It's, it's come to them and they're so happy to hear that, um, their faith and love and the report that they always remember that they're remembered kindly and that they long to see them. And for this reason, and it's basically, it gives comfort to them and all their distress and afflictions. All their distress and afflictions. And Paul went through a lot. This is the one thing that Paul wants. He wants a report that his labor is bringing fruit in the lives of the believers. And this is the nature of the ministry. It's like this is the vista that we have for the church. Not that... Um, in all of our, in, 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 in all of our distress, we're comforted by, I don't know, um, news that, uh, a certain governor in a province was placed, cause I like that guy, cause he stands for lower taxes or whatever. Um, I, I, or, or that, you know, some, some new Costco was built in Thessalonica because the, they didn't really have Costco's back then, but whatever, like super center for, for horses or something. No, that's not what they're, he's excited about. All his distress and, and affliction, he lives for the fact that he sees fruit in the lives of believers because he sees God at work, Christ at work, the spirit at work in the lives of them. In fact, this is a really interesting thing. He says, um, he says, uh, I got to find it with all my bad vision here. Um, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? All the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. But above, he says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. You know, um, uh, Sonia's, Sonia's mom went, went to be with the Lord about 10 years ago now. And one of the things that she used to say was, 
have a life. And it's actually, you ever heard the expression, get a life, like, get a life, you know? But she would say, have a life. And it was one of the things that was endearing about her is that she would kind of mess up idioms like that. And it was kind of funny because it's like somebody does something and she's like, have a life, you know? And it's funny because you know what the expression is. But you ever heard that? I'm sure you guys have heard their term, get a life. But the whole point is, what kind of life are you going to get? And the kind of life that Paul wants us to have is the kind of life that 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 actually is out there living for Christ. And this is one of those weird things. It's like, is this life, it, it's really spiritual life here, is the fact that you are standing fast in the Lord the reason that Paul has life? It's kind of weird, but in some ways, some people are like saying, we could breathe now that that was the case. But I really think what it is, is that for Paul, the fact that he's seeing fruit from his gospel ministry and the fact that he's, that, that he's sure in his heart that he's living for Christ, he's trying to do the things that Christ has commanded him. And then when he sees the fruit among him, the fact that the gospel is going forth, he's like saying, I know I have life because in part, not be, not merely because I have Christ, but also because I see the work of Christ's fruit in the lives of the believers that I'm working with. So in a real sense, the fruit that we see, the increase in one sense is kind of a form of the, the fact that we're, we're continuing to live, that we're, we're living in Christ, and we're seeing the fruit of the gospel go forward. You guys follow what I'm saying? So what is it to live for a Christian? What it is? What is it to be alive? What are we living for? What kind of life are we going after? Is the life one in which, you know, we're, con- we're trying to make sure we give a certain percentage of our income to a 401k? That's a good idea. I mean, prepare, you know, provide for your, your, um, those who come after you, I'm not saying that that's not a good thing. Is it that you're trying to um, uh, move up the corporate ladder and trying to uh, increase your skills and that sort of thing or get a good paying job? Again, those are good things because you're able to provide for your family. Um, it's a good thing that you would get married and, and have children and increase and all that other stuff. And there's all sorts of good goals right out there but ultimately what is our aim what are we really what are we really aiming for in this life and really in one sense it's the gathering of people created in the image of God into God's kingdom and we live as we see ourselves in gathered and we see ourselves living in this community and we desire so much to see life sprout as the gospel goes forward and it changes the lives and the hearts and minds of people as we we see these things take root in people. And so Paul is concerned because he's seen, he, he, he's, he's ripped away from his children that he's established in this place. And he's wondering, are they still living? And then when he comes back and hears the report, he's like, I know we're still alive because you're still alive. And I know that sounds strange, but there's, there's this connection here. And I think that it's important to remember as we sometimes need to have our priorities set straight as to what we're about. Do we actually look forward to worship? Do we actually look forward to Sunday and say, I, I hope that, I hope that my brothers and sisters are still living, so to speak, spiritually. You see what I'm saying? I'm coming back. It's like, you're still here. Yay. And, and I got to tell you, sometimes, um, as elders, I think, uh, Leonard, uh, 
can appreciate this. And Bob, who retired from the Marine Corps, just so everybody knows, um, would attest to this too, that sometimes you're kind of, you, you, you kind of wonder, are, are, are these people ever coming back? Because um, the, the, the attendance at worship by some is so sporadic that you see them again, and then you're like, you're kind of excited. You're kind of like, you, you almost realize they're still, they're still living, so to speak. And so we, we, you know, we want to see you regularly here for your good and for your, your growth, your, your, your being established in faith. In fact, that's, that's what, what Paul even, um, talks about in here. He says, uh, he says, we want to see you and supply what is lacking in your faith. And that's what we want to be every Sunday here. We want to be supplying what is lacking in your faith. And what do I mean by that? Do I mean like, okay, uh, faith in Jesus Christ, that you understand that Christ has died and risen, um, for, died for your sins and risen for your justification? That simple truth. No, I'm not saying that, that you're, 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 we're adding to that basic idea of what faith is, but there is a sense in which you are growing in grace. You're growing in faith. You're growing in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You're maturing in the things of God. You know, one of the things, um, one of the things that, uh, I am very thankful for is a pastor who prays very well. And you see that. Now that's not because Leonard went to a school that was called the school of prayer, so to speak, in which he, they, he memorized all these forms. What happens as you become more and more acquainted with the scriptures and you, um, you, you learn more about God and you learn more about Christ is that you have a lot of things to say about him. You have all sorts of thoughts that are coming to you because you have this rich tapestry of the word of God and you're kind of inf- infused over time with all of this knowledge of the scriptures. And one way to see the maturity of people is expressed in their prayers if they don't really have much to say about Christ because they don't know very much about him. Now you can know a very simple thing about you know, that God is love and that he loves us and and he wants to provide for us. But if that's all you know, then that's always going to be the same prayer every single time. And some of you have probably heard those prayers. Even in teenagers, sometimes you go to churches in which you don't ever, they're probably never exposed to rich prayers and they just keep praying the same prayer over and over because they have nothing more to say about them. In one sense, they're very infantile in their faith because they haven't been established in it. Now, um, I'm not saying this in judgment except for the fact that I think that that's one of the responsibilities of a church and its leaders is to try to help people grow. But you've never really, if, if you've never really thought about it before, the fact that your children are here on a regular basis, hearing your pastor pray for you, us as a congregation, they're constantly being exposed to the way it sounds to pray to God. And without, without a thing where you're sitting them down saying, okay, kids, this is how it is to pray, and you should be praying with your kids, by the way, because they're going to be learning from you too. But in the process, they learn how to pray because they're hearing their parents pray, they're hearing their pastor pray, and over time, their prayers reflect those themes that are biblical. Uh, there's a, a person named Carl Truman. Uh, he's he's uh, an OPC minister, and he, he said that he 
he learned Latin as a kid, and he doesn't remember the day he knew Latin. He just knows it now, so he had to have learned it somehow. You see what I'm saying? It's sort of like your kids can read, but what's the day they learned how to read? They just know how to read now, and they'd be like, I don't know. I just, I mean, like I started reading, like I don't even remember the first time my mom opened a book and started reading with me, but I know how to read now, and it's the same way with maturity and faith and the kinds of things that we're trying to instill in you. And this is why the scriptures are so urgent about the fact that in Hebrews it says, do not forsake the gathering of one another as some are in the habit of doing. You know, because the times are evil, the times are tough. And it's not a suggestion, actually. It's actually a command in the scriptures. And we're try, we're, we, we try not to be heavy-handed as elders. We try to shepherd and show by example the importance of coming together because we're here on a regular basis. We don't, and some, sometimes it's, it's obviously feels like a little bit of a chore, but once you're here, you feel like, I'm glad I did this. But the point is, is that we're not going to be heavy-handed about this, but we consider it important because we know that God considers it important. And there's, there's, there's statistics that um, something like 70 plus percent of children when they go off to college end up leaving the faith. And some of them come back when they have children. Now, the ones that don't, here's the secret. I just want to let you know, this is the secret. Their parents attend church regularly and their children are exposed to other people who are concerned about their spiritual well-being. Now, I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. Now, I am make, saying that for, to, to bring conviction on the importance of these kinds of things, but we show our, we show our priority in things as to what we say we're going to do with our time. And so if our time is better, if we feel our time is better spent staying up late on Saturday night instead of being uh, able to be ready for Sunday morning worship, then we're showing ultimately to our, ourselves and to our children what we most find important. And, and, and that's, I'm saying this because what we're about here is we're trying to establish you in the faith. And the primary place that we do that is when God's people are gathered for worship and God's people are hearing the preached word of God and we're encouraging one another and we're praying and we're singing with one another in corporate worship. And there are other things attendant to that. And I don't, I, I, I want to make sure you understand this, especially who, who as a parent is sometimes has trouble communicating to this this to your own children. I'm saying this because I love you, not because I'm trying to be hard on you, right? Because have you guys ever done things for your kids and they're like, you're doing the right thing for them and they don't appreciate it, but you say, you'll understand when you get older, right? What I'm trying to under- trying to help you understand is that I'm just trying to explain to you what God has said. And it's not just me having this weird conviction about regular attendance in church and the fact that we're here and we're growing together in worship. And if we're not doing that, then this is the primary place in which we're being formed right now. And all those other things that we're doing are good. But in part, if we don't feel connected to the church, if we don't feel like we're growing and we're not doing this basic thing, in part... We only have ourselves to blame because the opportunity is being provided on a regular basis and the elders will do everything we can to come beside you and encourage you and do everything we can. But ultimately what we're, what we're, what I'm trying to say is this is the place right now in which we're trying to help you stand firm and to help you to, to see Christ and that you would be growing 
in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and supply what is lacking in your faith because we all need each other to continue, continue to grow in grace. So um, let's continue on as Paul continues in verses 11 to 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for, for all as we do for you. So that we, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So this is a kind of benediction at the very end. And a benediction is a good word. And that's what Leonard does at the end of the service. He provides a good word. It's basically a blessing. It's, it's kind of as you go, the Lord is going to bless you. And what Paul is, is saying here is he's, thank you. So helpful. He's, he's saying to them, first of all, he's, he's asking that God, notice that God, uh, our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Now that may seem small to you that he's mentioning Jesus Christ along, uh, Lord Jesus Christ along with God the Father, but it's an early attestation that one of the earliest letters that Paul has written if you need um, attestation that the, the, the Christian faith had established God, Jesus as God early on in their faith. It's, it's, it's so infused that sometimes you have these skeptics that think that this, this stuff's just being made up as it goes along and there were versions of Christianity. I can just tell you flat out that any version of Christianity that j- denies that Jesus uh, that Jesus himself is God is not Christian at all. It, it's something else, but it's not Christianity. But he's praying that both God, um, that God our Father, God and our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ would direct, would provide a way for them to come to them and that the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now, Paul in another place talks about the fact that there are three things, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And one of the things I was really reflecting upon this past week was we all understand the idea, I think, of, of faith as the fact that we are we, we are laying hold of Christ and his righteousness, and we understand because Christ has come and died and risen and ascended on high and interceded for us and bought and, and his, his, he's purchased for us faith so that we might under, understand who he is and embrace him in the gospel and turn away from our sins. And so then we're transported from death to life to see the kingdom of God. And so we have faith as we lay hold of Christ, not something that we had in and ourselves, but this empty hand that says, I have nothing. Christ is everything. I lay hold of him. And then hope is this vista, this thing that opens up to us the reality of everything that is and will be. As we look forward, and we're going to see later on, we're going to see later on what uh, one of the things that we're hoping for. And hope isn't one of those things where it says like, uh, is it going to rain? To, or, well, is it going to snow on Christmas or something like that? And somebody says, well, I hope so. Well, that's kind of one of those things where hope is used in the sense where I'd like that to be the case, but I'm not sure it is, but it'd really be cool if it snowed on Christmas. Now, that's what the kids hope for. Personally, I hate snow. I had enough of it when I was in New York. And so, you know, I know that makes me kind of, you know, a little bit 
uh, I don't know, crotchety or whatever it is, but I've had enough of snow. But some people hope for snow. But the kind of hope that we have in Christ is the kind of hope that's certain where, where the gospel, where the scriptures open up and, and, and God says, this is the way things are going to turn out. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now that Christ is going to come in a cloud of glory and everything's going to be okay. And you're on God, you're on Christ's side and everything's going to be awesome. We're going to have, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so we are in the midst of affliction, but Christ is winning. Even though it seems like the entire culture is saying, you're a knucklehead, so to speak. You got the culture is saying you guys are like living on the wrong side of history. You've got all sorts of phobias, all sorts of problems. You haven't figured out that this is unscientific. You haven't under you, you don't understand any, everything. And we're kind of hanging our heads, saying, "Man, I feel really like a dork for believing all this stuff." And then God says, "It's okay. That's been the way it always is. Your your Christians have always seemed strange for the way they live, and they, and they end up they they end up hopefully." Ultimately, what we, what, 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 uh, it should be providing is love for one another. But the point is, God is trying to say, it's okay, everything's gonna work out. And that's what we're hoping for. See, we see the fact that everything's gonna be okay, and it makes this present journey, this sojourn, okay. And this is what Abraham had to look forward, all, forward to. All Abraham had to look forward to was the fact that he was going to be established as a great nation in another place. And God said, go there. He didn't even have nearly the amount of promise that we have to where we understand that Christ has died and risen and that he's the son of God interceding for us and he's going to win. And so we have this ultimate hope, no matter what's going on, that everything's going to be okay. And so it gives it gives um, comfort as well as a sense of vindication for the suffering that we're experiencing right now. And then that transforms the way that we should be able to love one another. But it's all, it's not necessarily just within ourselves because it's a prayer that God would increase our love for one another. That God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, and then the Spirit applying this fact that we would learn to love one another. And you wouldn't need to have, we wouldn't need God's power in us if this was something that just came naturally. Like, you, you just, like, get on a bike and you know how to ride it or something like that. Or, oh yeah, I knew how to love, I just need to try it again. No, love is tough. You know, it's especially tough in the Christian church because, um, you know, we aren't, we aren't called together because we have natural lines of affinity that we, we just all decided to become members of this congregation because we all share the same interests or we all see things the same way. Whatever, whatever, you know, however we want to raise our kids or how we want to spend our time, whatever we consider important, you know, like I, I think that Karen can attest to or other people who um, have done children's ministry that everybody always agrees on the way children should be cared for. That's the great thing about this church. <laughs> and that's the way, reason she does it is because everybody is always so happy with the way that she does it. There's never any complaint. That's the reason why we're elders is because all the time, all you get every time is like, you're doing such a great job. Everything you're doing is perfect. Just keep doing what you're doing because that's the reason we're here. Now, kids, I'm being facetious. And if you don't understand what facetious is, ask your parents when you get home. But the idea is that love takes work. And we have to be established. We actually have to work at loving one another. 
And you have to work at, um, not, not necessarily again, not, not feeling like you're coming because, um, because there's something that I'm waiting for to happen within my congregation so that I'll feel like this is exactly the thing that I needed from the congregation in terms of I'm going to find my best friend here. I'm going to find some other thing that I need, but because you're invested in the body of Christ. And again, preparing ourselves for affliction. For, for the kind of congregation that's going to be praying for one another. Kind of congregation that's going to be upholding one another. You know, one of the things that's, that we've had is like, uh, the, the worst kind of tragedy in the world in our congregation, or, or the first worst kind of tragedy imaginable in our congregation, along with tons of births all at the same time. And so here we are, a small congregation loving one another in like, and, and, and you may feel sometimes like, I kind of signed up for meals, but I mean, it seems like that's all I'm doing right now is providing meals for people who need meals, right? Can't we space it out? Can't we space love out a little bit, you know, so that we're not having to love all the time? But that's the way love is. It's like, it's inconvenient. You gotta, you gotta work at these kinds of things. And anybody who's, um, who's, uh, been married long enough or have had kids, uh, love is, is, that's why love is the fulfillment of the law is because it, it requires tangible actions. It requires, um, a lot, uh, a turning away from self, a certain sense of duty at times, a sense that you need to invest yourself. You need to be growing in, in, in even understanding what it is to love because you, you're sometimes immature in terms of what you understand love is. And so there's this necessity that we, we continue to practice the things that attend to love. And then, then that I'm not saying that everything that we do will, um, will will be displeasurable. We're going to enjoy the things that we do that attend to love, but sometimes it is really hard. And so we need that help. And that's the one thing that'll endure. Eventually, when sin goes away, when all the things that, that go away, when Christ returns, we'll no longer have trouble loving because we're going to be redeemed. But right now, we're still struggling with the flesh. We're still struggling with sin in our members, still struggling with all the things that make us tired, all the temptations, all the things that turn us away. And so we need to work at it because love means that we're going to be working um, self, selflessly for one another to continue to encourage one another, continue to, to, cause, to, to help one another press in. And then he says um, his, thir- his, his next petition, um, petition here is, he says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So let me deal with the first part here. What we, we are ultimately blameless in Christ because we're united by faith in him. There are some uh, branches of Christianity that uh, that believe that what God measures is he kind of gives you grace and then you continue to cooperate with it. And then it's sort of like, like a thermometer. You get above like maybe 70 degrees and you're warm enough to be, you know, like considered holy, right? And then you start doing bad things and your, your, your thermometer goes down and then you need to kind of work yourself back up. So you're, you're constantly in a state up and down. Whereas what the scriptures really teach is that Christ, by his death and resurrection, has, has, 
has imputed to us. He's given us his righteousness. When he died on a cross, he took our sin upon himself, the judgment that belongs to that. All that he took upon himself. And then as we lay a hold of him by faith, we are hid in Christ so that his righteousness belongs to us. So that when God looks at us, he sees us in Christ. But we're still united to Christ as sinners. We're not, the sin in us has not completely been healed. It it doesn't go away. And anybody who doubts that really does not understand their own hearts. Anybody who doubts that sin remains in them and they're somehow perfect still, and there are Christians that believe that, um, they they really are self-deceived or don't understand what sin is if they don't see this continual, feel this continual battle and this, this waging of war within their members against the holy things that God would want for us. But what what the prayer here is that when Christ unites us to, to himself, he also starts to cleanse us. He starts to make us more and more holy so that, that we desire less and less sinful things and we d- d- desire more and more holy things. Again, we talked about maturity. This is part of being established in the faith. And the 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 the, the hope in the scriptures, again, is that this idea that Christ's bride is being is being prepared as a spotless bride. He's working on her and at the collective church. He's working on all of us to make us more and more holy so that we turn away from unrighteousness to righteousness. And the, the, the idea here is that, that, that we shouldn't be measuring ourselves and saying, do I have any sin remaining in me? Because if I do, I'm not blameless. And how, how, how am I going to stand with Christ? No, we're standing in Christ. So, but we're becoming more and more holy, but don't, don't ever doubt that you will be with Christ. If you trust in him, you will be, but he is making you blameless. And then he's also preparing us for this time, this vista. Remember, we talked about the hope that we have at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, um, Sophia's really interested in dispensationalism lately because it's taught quite a bit at the school that she goes to. And um, I try and tell her, well, I shouldn't say certain things um, in the pulpit. I'll say those things to you later if you want to know what I'd say as a joke. But um, one of the things that people try to do here is um, change the word here for from saints to angels, uh, where the word is hagios, um, and Paul everywhere uses this to refer to the saints. He never, he never refers to it as angels. The term is holy ones or sanctified ones. It could theoretically be used for angels, but in Paul, the way he always uses it is as saints. And the reason why they want to do this is because they're trying to get Paul to kind of fit into this idea that, well, what we're talking about is when, when the rapture occurs, when when uh, Jesus comes with his angels and then all the believers are caught up and then, um, you know, the hope is that there will be a pile of clothes for all who believed in Jesus Christ. But um, the reality here is that there is, the scriptures teach that there is a coming of Jesus Christ with his saints. So that the hope is that there is going to be, uh, there's going to be a time when the saints who have gone before us are going to be resurrected and Christ is going to come with them while we're still alive, and we'll all be transform, transformed in an instant with new, uh, with uh, resurrected bodies. And so, what Paul is pointing to again is this: is this work that's going on in the church, 
that we're being made more and more holy, we're being made more and more loving because the reality of is that all of those saints that went before them at Thessalonica, they're going to see them again. They're going to see them resurrected with Christ. All of those who have gone before us, we're going to see them again resurrected when Christ comes. Because we're all working towards a holy end. We're all working towards a new heavens and a new earth. We're all working that there are men and women, um, boys and girls out there who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ, who are still dead in their sins and trespasses and need a church that's loving one another and growing in grace with one another so that the work, the, the love that we have overflows. There's too much there. It's just like the cup is overflowing because we're working so hard in Christ and by Christ's power to love one another that the, that the love we have ends up transforming our lives so that as we're walking out into the world, we're also loving the saints out there as well. And they're being transformed and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ with us. And so we look forward to that, and we look forward to seeing the ingathering of, of saints, but also we look forward to seeing the saints that have come before us resurrected with, um, resurrected, and then we're going to be resurrected with him, and we're going to be in a new heavens with him forever. Let us pray. Our Father, our God, we, we thank you for this reality that we're working towards, and we thank you for the testimony of your gospel that transforms um, men and women and children to your gospel. And so we thank you for uh, the fact that we have not been uh, left dead in our sins and trespasses, but we have been brought into your church so that we might learn to grow in grace and to learn what it is to love one another and to continue to strive for that love that Christ produces in us. And so, Father, we pray for that, and we pray that we would um, continue to be transformed, to be made blameless, so that we might um, someday meet Christ with all the saints who have gone before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.